You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Well, hello everyone, it's Joel here. I thought I'd touch base on the podcast. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it and it's useful and it's fruitful for you. Uh, But what you might notice is that we quite often have only the same voices doing the Bible reading week on week. Uh, And that's not because in CU we don't have many people read the Bible. In fact, we want everyone to be reading their Bible. But it's simply that we can't capture that for the purposes of the podcast, uh, like we can capture the sermon. And so uh, while in CU on a Tuesday night, we have lots of people reading the Bible for the podcast you'll only hear one or two voices. And you might notice sometimes that Stu ends his sermon with Amen and he walks off. Uh, And usually what happens on a Tuesday night is that someone will get up and pray a longer prayer in response to the sermon. But again, we can't capture that for the podcast, unfortunately. And so um, I'd love you to spend a moment or two after the sermon's finished and after the outro uh, to pray and reflect on uh, the sermon Uh, Because we do that in a longer format on a Tuesday night, but we simply can't do that in the podcast. And so I pray this talk is useful and helpful for you as you enjoy listening, but I thought I'd let you know a few things about the podcast. Our Bible reading for today is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness... In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Yeah, well, nice little backstory um, about my lack of core strength. Uh, when <laughs> Jeremy, you've really hit a nerve there. I'll try. I'm going to. I'm going to try and move past it. But when when uh, I was first married, um, I had a little a little pot belly, and my wife sort of goes, "Hey, what's that? What's going on there?" And I said, "Oh, his name's Barry." Um, and he's packing his bags, and don't worry, he'll soon be gone. And these days, she likes to sort of joke about that, and she says to me every probably six months or so, she goes, well, um, I've noticed you another relative of Barry's moved in. <laughs> so um, I'm wondering when exactly he was going to leave <laughs> and take his family with him. There's a whole extended bunch there now, but anyway, could take a while. Uh, so yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Anyway... Um, Bless you. So, uh, we're saying this new series, um, and it's, it's uh, talking about core strength, exploring this idea of cultivating uncommon common godliness through the book of Titus, because in Titus, uh, there's a really strong theme and teaching about developing spiritual disciplines, developing self-control, for, for our discipleship of Jesus, for our spiritual journey, discipline, self-control. 
at the centre of what Titus wants to convey about being a Christian. And uh, I've asked the question tonight as an intro to the series, is discipline a dirty word? And I asked that for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, I think it might be a dirty word for some of us some of the time because um, it's, it doesn't feel very spiritual. What I mean is, it feels like there are more spiritual ways to talk about being empowered or developing or growing as a Christian. When I was first a Christian, one of the most influential books I read that still kind of has influenced me to this day um, was Melody Green's biography on her husband, Keith Green, who's deceased. He was a musician, a pretty famous Christian. But his story was crazy. And it was all about uh, what you might call these wild adventures as he, in a radical way, pursued, this is, I guess, how he described it, pursue the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it was full of him making brave, bold decisions, praying in faith, doing things that scared him, for what he thought was the sake of the gospel and amazing things were happening around him all the time. There was kind of like this little mini revival around Keith Green and a ministry that mushroomed kind of from his spirit-led leadership, I suppose. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's, that's what it means to be empowered as a Christian. And so maybe you feel the same way. Uh, the idea of disciplines, of plodding along, of developing, learning, cultivating self-control may not feel like a very empowered way of living as a Christian. Haven't we got the spirit to empower us? Possibly, that's, that's how you think about it. Another, another thing is that um, as Protestants, people who came out of Roman Catholicism many, many years ago, centuries ago, uh, being people who love the gospel, we're a little bit allergic to anything that seems to hint at works. We, we get a bit shy about talking about the necessity of doing good deeds or practicing good deeds or practicing spiritual disciplines because we don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that perhaps somehow we are saved by works or what we add on top of what Christ has done for us. We get nervous about talking about spiritual disciplines. And indeed, at the end of this talk, because I'm nervous about that too, and because it's in the text, I'm going to make sure it's clear that what fuels spiritual discipline is a relationship of grace. That that's the context in which we cultivate spiritual disciplines and self-control is, is in the context of grace. I'm going to make that clear myself. But maybe we're a little bit nervous about it. We don't want to slip into works, a works doctrine. But there's no doubt about it. Here in the book of Titus, Cultivating spiritual disciplines is heavily emphasised. It's front and centre. It's seen by Paul as he's speaking to Titus, who is left in Crete, as this is the critical thing you must pass on to those Christians there in Crete. The slight complication here is that when you read a little bit about the context, and you can see it here on the surface of the book of Titus, it makes perfect sense that in this particular situation, Paul is concerned about spiritual discipline being established. Listen to what it says. Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 13. That's the wrong verse. Oops, sorry, verse 12. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Verse 13, Paul writes, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Paul there is quoting a Cretan philosopher, Epimenides, and he has a less than flattering view, right, of his fellow countrymen, countrywomen. And actually, this assessment of Cretan culture was widespread. Listen to this quote from Polybius, who was a 2nd century BC Greek historian. Listen to what he writes about Cretan culture. Money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree creditable. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, whatever. Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murderers and civil wars. Polybius goes on and on about how poor the Cretan character is, but I'm going to shorten it now a bit further on. And in a, in rather quaintly, he writes, I will now address myself to showing that the Cretan constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. He's really digging the boots in. And then he goes on a bit further on. Now, he lands here, he concludes, now with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. Cicero, a long time after this, writes, comments, Cretans consider highway robbery honourable. <laughs> wow. Everyone's piling on the Cretans. They're renowned for being people who just love money, are happy to murder people, full of dysfunction and chaos. They even think highway robbery is honourable. You're at the pub talking about your sons. So, Bob, what's your son up to these days? I, I, I hear he's finished high school. Yeah, he's just taken on an apprenticeship. He's, he's uh, going to be a carpenter. Uh, we're really glad for him. How about your son? Oh, my son. Yeah, no, we are really, really stoked. He's, he's also got an apprenticeship. He's been trained up, trained up to, uh, to be a highway robber. We're so stoked. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, that's, you must be so happy. My son couldn't get into that stream. He just had to settle for carpentry. Oh, I'm so envious. This is how they are. They say they've got no shame about any gain whatsoever here in this culture, right? So it makes sense, right? It makes sense that when... Paul is writing to Titus, who is left behind in Crete after having gone and preached the gospel there. He says to them, you've got to make sure that among the churches you establish discipline and self-control. And you can even see it in the way that Paul writes to Titus, and that's why I had the intro uh, read out. Listen to kind of the slightly consoling tone in the introduction. Look at these first few verses. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. We are serving, Titus, God's elect. 
This is his work through us. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who doesn't lie, Titus, he doesn't lie, promised before the beginning of time. You may have not much hope at all for these Cretans, but God, who doesn't lie, has the elect and he's pulling them out and we're just serving the gospel according to his purpose. And which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. I love you, Titus. I care for you. I haven't just abandoned you. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete, Titus, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I haven't abandoned you, Titus. You're left there for a good reason, according to the sovereign plan and purposes of God. Hang in there. And so it makes sense for us that it emphasises discipline, self-control, establishing that as a foundation. So therefore... What relevance does this have for us? What relevance does this have for us? You guys aren't exposed to this kind of terrible, unruly, immoral culture. I mean, perhaps you could relate to Titus if you were sent to Melbourne Uni to preach the gospel. (laughs) Perhaps that would be a tough gig, similar to what's going on here, but... Now, here at Monash, actually, this is an institution full of, relatively speaking, self-controlled people. I mean, you might laugh at this, but I take it that most of you are pretty good at getting up in the morning at the right time, brushing your teeth, basic hygiene, having a shower. Not totally sure about that for some of us. Doing your homework, going to bed early, getting good sleep, eating reasonably in a reasonably healthy way, doing your assignments, getting them in on time, passing your courses. You guys, like relatively speaking, you are quite disciplined. You do know what it is to be somewhat self-controlled in a relative, you know, in a, in a relatively speaking. This is not a rough culture here at Monash University where people are wild and out of control, particularly. And so you might think, well, how how is this relevant to us? Well, the reason it's relevant for us is because the kind of self-control and the kind of discipline that Paul is talking about goes beyond garden variety, middle class, sort of just sensible living. It It goes beyond that, goes well beyond that. The end point for the self-control and discipline that Paul talks about here in this passage is not that you will reach the middle-class dream and live a sensible life in a sensible suburb and your kids will be well-behaved and not do drugs. And that's, that's not his end goal that he's aiming for when he talks about being disciplined and self-control. That stuff actually does matter. And that, that kind of garden variety commonly understood definition of self-control and discipline does actually happen to be often a fruit of the gospel. Um, The Welsh revivals are famous in part for that reason, that whole classes of people went up the socio-economic ladder simply because the gospel swept through Wales, swept through Wales. And so especially as it went through the mining communities where, you know, blokes would spend all day down the mine shaft, come up, go to the pub, spend all their money at the pub, 
when the gospel swept through Wales, it completely transformed them. They stopped wasting their money on alcohol. They paid more attention to their family. They had a reason for living. And so, yes, the gospel does tend to have that fruit. It kind of, it kind of actually gentrifies cultures and societies. But the aim of gospel discipline and self-control goes far beyond that. What's the aim? What's the purpose? Well, look here in this, in this passage. It says there, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. What is our hope? It's not the middle-class dream that you'll have a sensible, stable family. Yes, that can be a lovely fruit of the gospel, but that is not the goal, the aim. Our hope is eternal life. That's what spiritual discipline, that's what spiritual self-control equips us for, trains us for, the inheriting of eternal life. And it's a great sort of summary of the gospel hope. We're headed for eternal life. That's everything opposite to what we, what we inherit outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, we will inherit death forever. And eternal life talks about the complete reversal of death in everything that's attached to death and dying. The groaning, the sighing, the anxiety, the depression, the chronic, uh, the chronic illnesses, people dying around us, loved ones dying, just finding life hard relationally, growing old, all of these things, boredom, frustration, all these things belong to the life destined for death. But eternal life is a complete reversal, and that's what we're headed for. That's what we're going to inherit. There will be no sighing, no tears, no depression, no anxiety, no dysfunctional relationships. Every day will be better than the next. We will never get sick of living in heaven, in eternal life, in the presence of God. We'll be full of joy. Our hearts will be permanently full. We won't be able to get enough of it. We won't want to go to bed to sleep because we hate missing out on life. No tiredness, no sickness, no wrinkles. That's the hope that these spiritual disciplines and self-control are preparing us for. And it's not just a great future hope. It also says, it also says over the page, oh sorry, in the next chapter, not over the page for you. It also says in, in chapter 2, uh, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and listen to what it says, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What's happening now? God is disciplining us or wanting to train us, to teach us the disciplines, spiritual disciplines. 
and spiritual self-control, that we would be a people set apart for him, that he has, that he has bought for himself. We live that now. That's a new life and way of living that we've been blessed with right now. I have a daughter um, who loves to play netball and, uh, you know, I think she's quite good at it. And I've often said to her, you know, if you, if you train, if you could be really good at this, I mean, I don't really mind if she's not. I just wanted to have fun. But I said, you know, you've got talent. You can cultivate this. And you see, for, for netball, uh, the common garden variety understanding of discipline that is typical of a sensible person in a sensible suburb, that is required, right, to play netball. Like, you've got to turn up to training. You've got to get out of bed on time. Be punctual. You've just got to be respectful. Listen to your coach. That's just ordinary, basic discipline, self-control. But to be a netball player, a really good netball player, there are specific disciplines, right, that you need to, to adopt and grow in. How to, how to shoot a goal with a hoop that's yay high with no backboard. Um, you know, how to play in different zones. Um, you need to be fit to be running the whole game. You need to know all the rules of netball so you know what you're doing. There are just lots of things you need to learn, right, that are particular to the task. And similarly here, there are things, disciplines, areas of self-control that we need to cultivate and grow in that are particular to the task of being Christ's people and of living for eternal life and with that as our hope. And so this is relevant for us, is what I'm trying to say. Is this exhortation, this repeated exhortation throughout Titus to be disciplined and self-controlled is relevant for us. Look, look at what Titus says uh, here in, um, in Titus chapter 1. He says, as um, he's instructing, uh, as Paul is instructing Titus to, to appoint elders, he says, um, uh, an elder, verse 8, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He goes on uh, in, in, uh, in chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Verse, uh, verse 4, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure. Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. He repeats again and again and again, self-control, discipline. Watch yourself. And this is relevant to us, something that we need to train ourselves in as we increasingly become Christ's people. And as we increasingly train our, our mind on the, the, the hope of eternal life. A long time ago, years ago, when um, I was first writing this series of talks, I remember being in my office at home and struggling with uh, Titus just 
you know, thinking about it, reading widely, just, you know, trying to work out how to start and, you know, how, how to break up the book and all that kind of stuff. And it was getting a bit intense. It was, uh, I think it was on a Monday, usually when I do talk writing stuff, been at it for a few hours, getting a bit tired. I thought, okay, I've got to go for a walk. So I thought I'll go for a prayer walk. Um, I like to walk while I pray. So I thought I'll, I'll walk up to uh, my coffee strip in Cheltenham. It's about 15 minutes away. I walk up, pray as I go, get a coffee, come back, pray on the way back as well. That'll be a good break. So I did that. I, I walked up to Cheltenham. I was praying, having a good old time, got a coffee. And then as I turned around to come back, I noticed um, the op shop on the main strip of Cheltenham. There are actually a few there. And I'm a, I'm a mad keen op shopper. I love op shopping. And uh, I've worked out, well, this is my method. My method for op shopping is lots of short visits. My theory is, is that if there's anything good in the op shop, it's usually not tucked away at the back somewhere. Usually anything that's good, they put on display because they want to draw customers in. So what you do is you just go frequently because all of the good stuff's on display and it's often snapped up really quickly. So just keep on ducking in and out of op shops really quickly and just hope that your timing's right. Well, one day, this, this day rather, when I was walking past it, I went inside. It was only took me about 20 seconds. I saw it there this beautiful reading chair, a lovely chair that would be perfect in my office. And I was so excited. It looked really cool. I sat in it, it was super comfy, nice and clean, like new. This was amazing. And I can't actually remember now how much it was, but it was pretty cheap, like 50 bucks or something like that. But it was a really, really nice chair. And I thought, I have to have this chair. But I didn't have any money on me. So I thought, I've got to run back home, get some money, come back and buy it before it gets snapped up. And so I turned around and I knew, of course, that I'd committed to praying on the way back home. So I thought, okay, well, I'll pray. But I was power walking. And really all I was thinking about this was this chair. And I thought to myself, because I'd been thinking about Titus, how ironic this was, that I'm reading this book that's talking about you know, having a heavenly hope and being spiritually disciplined. And here I am completely distracted by this very worldly, fleshly thing, such that I could barely pray anymore. And I thought, oh, well, that's a rebuke to myself, this sort of reflection I'm having. Just slow down, trust God. So I stopped and I gave it to God. I said, God, I don't want to be this person. I want to be someone who trusts you. Look, you, can, you, you know how to keep that chair for me if you want me to have that chair. I'll just chill out and focus on what I'm doing. I'm paid as a gospel worker. I'm actually... You know, on the clock here, I'm meant to be working in my role as a Christian teacher. So I should be praying. It's part of my job. So focus on that task. And so I rebuked myself and then I slowed down and started to pray again. You know, about sort of 200 metres later, I was thinking about the chair again, bring it back. I was walking a bit more. My, my steps were getting faster because I'm pretty sure it's going to get snapped up because it's such a good buy. Slow down. You know, your treasure is in heaven. Focus on your heavenly hope. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Well, I eventually got home, got my money. I raced back. Um, and there as I went in the, the door, there was someone picking it up and carrying it out. And I said, hang on, that's my chair. <laughs> And they said, I don't think so. I just bought it. And I grabbed them by the collar 
and none of that happened. It was there. It was there. I paid the money. I got my chair. I thought, praise God. God really is there. God re- this is proof. God actually cares for me. God is love. He is love. He preserved this chair for me. But here's the thing, like it's a silly story, and, but here's the thing I want to land. It's a real story, but here's the thing I want to land, right? Here's the thing I want to land. Spiritual disciplines, cultivating self-control as a Christian, is all about learning to develop godly desires. It's about really beginning to grasp hold of the heavenly hope. It's about living a life that, yes, because you're now sensible, because you work hard, because you don't lie, because you are loyal and a hard worker, yes, you will probably advance in a career more quickly. And because you've got integrity, people will like you more than if you weren't a Christian. So, yes. The kind of godliness and self-control that, yes, might actually elevate you in a career path and actually might mean that you would have the middle-class suburban life that otherwise you might not have. Yes, the gospel will do that. But the gospel discipline, the gospel self-control is really about giving you a different heart, a different desire, a different goal in life that actually just as likely is that you will inexplicably give up a lucrative career for the sake of the gospel. Yes, it might actually produce just a sensible life in you with kind of um, sensible outcomes. But that is by no means the end point for gospel discipline, gospel self-control. It wants you, the end goal is that you're sold out for Jesus. That you're a Jesus freak. That your hope is demonstrably in the life after this one, that you're living in a way that is consistent with a radical renewal, transformation and judgment day that you know is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what its real goal is, and that's why it's necessary for us. And friends, here it's saying it requires training, discipline, practice. There's no silver bullet. There's no secret switch somewhere to flick on that makes it easy. No, we cultivate it. Cultivate it. We plod, we sweat, we work to develop this hope and this way of living that can be quite slow but is actually in the end radical. Now, I want to end though, I want to end though, um, as I said at the start, with with grace, because that's actually here in the passage. I want to end with grace. So, you know, when we're talking about disciplines and self-control that, say, you might cultivate as a young girl playing netball, what's the carrot? Well, the carrot um, is that you get to be a part of the team, you get to play the sport you love, you might be on a really good team if you're all training together. That's the carrot, the fun of playing netball, perhaps at a high level. What's the stick? Well, if you're not disciplined, if you don't turn up, you might be kicked off the team, right? That's, that's the stick, the carrot and the stick. You lose your place on the team. Well, what I want to say here in this passage is it says that the stick is grace. Look here at what it says. 
in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What's the fundamental driver that teaches us to say no to sin? It's the grace of God that has appeared. It's the grace of God. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like there's no sort of stick kind of discipline in the Christian life. There is. Uh, You know, there are often natural consequences of living in sin. Sometimes God... Um, you know, a part of disciplining us is giving us over to our sin that we would get thoroughly sick of it, get ourselves in a pickle and see how bad it is when we put up with it in our lives. In, in Corinthians, it says that uh, because you're approaching the Lord's Supper in an impure way, some of you are fallen sick. It says in Hebrews that the father disciplines the ones he loves. It's talking there about chastisement. Oh, no, there is, there is a stick kind of teaching here in the New Testament, right? But the difference here is that it's not fundamentally about the stick. It's not saying if you're not disciplined enough or not self-controlled enough, you're off the team. Like it would be, you know, with nipple. The carrot, the stick, the carrot is you do really well. The stick is you're off the team. There's There's no such language or talking when it comes to Christ. No, by grace, you're always in. And grace is actually the thing that empowers you. That is the one thing that works when it comes to saying no to sin. That's what it says here. The grace of God has appeared that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. How does it work? Well, it's the only thing that works. The stick cannot work because we are too too good at sinning, too bad at being holy. If the stick was the instrument that God used, we would constantly be depressed and in fear. It doesn't work. No, no, we're actually, we're actually quite bad at being holy. We're quite often sinful. But grace teaches us to immediately get up, dust ourselves off, and keep pursuing Christ. Grace empowers us. Grace affords us the luxury of saying, no matter how many times I've repeated that sin, It doesn't have to be the big, ugly thing in my life that is threatening to take me out of the family of God. It does not have to be the thing that I focus on. When I sin, I say sorry, I repent, I get up, and I focus on the good. Just keep doing it. That's the power of grace. There is always enough grace. Even if it's a thousand times a thousand of that same sin, there is always enough grace. And grace always says to you, child, get up. You are my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. Get up, this can't kill you. Focus on the good. Keep cultivating the disciplines that help you to love Jesus more and focus on your heavenly hope, eternal life. We are to cultivate uncommon common godliness. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, 
you can do so via the link in the podcast description.